No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Katherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer, and this is No Gray Zone Podcast. Today we wrap up our Women's History Month March series, highlighting amazing women who've been instrumental in creating necessary and needed changes for survivors of sexual assault. And there's no one better to put the explanation point on this series than Tracy Bitchers. Tracy is the executive director of It's On Us, a nonprofit that combats campus sexual assault and is a nationally recognized expert on sexual violence prevention and survivor advocacy. As a national expert, Tracy has helped draft state and federal legislation to prevent sexual assault and support survivors. And if that's not enough, Tracy is a member of the board of directors for EROC and and Rape on Campus and a member of the advisory board of Culture of Respect. Tracy, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Catherine and Melissa, for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you all. We're thrilled to have you, and you've accomplished so much and have been a national voice for survivors. So can you tell us a little bit about what led you to work in the field of sexual assault and more specifically your path to the executive director of It's On Us? Absolutely. That's a great question. I was an undergraduate student between 2006 and 2010. And that's really important because that was really like immediately before a national spotlight was put on the issue of campus sexual assault. And so when my friends and I did experience sexual violence and harassment on campus, it felt like it was very unique to our school. It felt like this was a problem at our school and nowhere else. Nobody else was really talking about this issue at the time. It wasn't front and center in the news. It wasn't something Congress was tackling. It wasn't something that the White House at the time was publicly tackling. Little did we know there was work happening behind the scenes during the Obama-Biden administration on this issue then. But unfortunately, by the time I graduated, it just really felt like this was a problem that was unique to my school. And I don't understand why it was so bad at my school and why my school wasn't doing anything to address it. So if you fast forward a year later in 2011, that was when um, for the first time ever, the Department of Education Office for Civil Rights issued what was called the Dear Colleague Letter on Title IX. And essentially it was guidance for colleges and universities, as well as K to 12 schools to some degree on how they needed to essentially use Title IX and its provisions to A, prevent sexual violence before it happened on campus, and B, if sexual misconduct did occur, what their responsibilities were to uphold student civil rights under Title IX. And that was really important because sort of loosely since the Clinton administration, we had seen the White House and the Department of Education 
think about Title IX in relation to sexual harassment and misconduct, but this was the first time it was ever very clearly made explicit that schools were going to be held responsible by the Office for Civil Rights or OCR for issues surrounding Title IX and campus sexual assault. And that coincided with my return to the U.S. And I was looking for ways to sort of get back involved in the campus or even just sexual violence advocacy space generally. And a mentor of mine from college sent me the application, this application to join the board of an organization called Students Active for Ending Rape or SAFER. And I sort of refer to SAFER as like the OG campus sexual assault uh, prevention and, ad- and survivor advocacy organization. It had been founded in the early 2000s by students at Columbia and ended up sort of morphing into this watchdog nonprofit that was doing a lot of behind the scenes work on campus sexual assault issues. So I ended up applying to join the board. It was, the whole organization was volunteer run by like this scrappy group of women and trans and non-binary folk who were young professionals or, you know, in grad school in New York who really cared about this issue and wanted to drive the conversation forward. And I joined the board in early 2012. And again, like I said, the Dear Colleague letter had come out, but they're really there. This was just really when students started to file complaints because they were realizing, oh, this Dear Colleague letter came out. I can file a complaint with the Department of Education for my rights being violated under Title IX for the way they handled my investigation and adjudication process around my incident of campus sexual assault. And so suddenly you started seeing students from everywhere from Tufts University to UNC to schools out like to schools out in California getting brought up on these Title IX violations. And so as like the one organization that was like very officially formed at that time, we started to get all of these press inquiries and we started to get all of these followers on Twitter. And at the time I was the communications person for SAFER. And so it was really interesting to sort of be at SAFER at that time when we really didn't know where this movement was going. We didn't know what was gonna happen. We didn't know if this was just pure lip service that was being paid, but then suddenly, Tyler Kincaid from the Huffington, he was writing for the Huffington Post at the time, he reached out and was like, hey, we'd love to talk to you about this issue. Like what safers take on this? And then our social media started growing really aggressively. Then suddenly we were getting calls from CNN for me to go and talk live on CNN. And it suddenly went from zero to 200 very quickly. And shortly thereafter, uh, Senator Gillibrand's office called and said, we want to do something on this. Can you come to D.C.? (laughs) Like it all got very big, very quickly. And this was really around the time that organizations like Know Your Nine and Rape on Campus started to form and really create this national network of student survivor advocacy organizations. Um, And I ended up sort of finding my niche in the space at the time with another safer board member, Jessica Ladd, who at the time was a MPH student at Johns Hopkins University, but had also started her own nonprofit. At the time, it was called Sexual Health Innovations that was working at the intersection of tech and sexual health issues. And she had this idea of, well, what if we made reporting both digital and trauma-informed. How can we sort of solve around that issue? Because we knew most survivors don't report, right? Especially in college campuses, most survivors don't report. They find the process confusing. It's also intimidating. If you're an 18-year-old college student and the way to report is you need to go 
into the student conduct office and tell a stranger that you've never met what happened to you, that's not a great, not a great solution for this issue. And so she was like, how do we use technology to address this reporting gap? And more importantly, how can we also then use technology to address the issue of repeat perpetration? Because we knew most of student survivors who we talked to, they, they mostly wanted to report because they wanted to stop what had happened to them from happening to someone else. They also though, often were afraid to be the only one reporting because there was a lot of doubt that comes, I think, particularly with survivorship at a young age of, did I just not understand? Did, was, were my actions misinterpreted? There's a lot of self blame that happens, I think with young survivors at that age and it causes them to have a hesitancy and they don't want to be the only person coming forward. And, you know, and depending on who their perpetrator is, if it's the captain of the football team in an NCAA division one school, that's terrifying to have to be that person. But if you know, or have a way of knowing that the person who assaulted you assaulted someone else, your desire to report increases significantly. And so we essentially ended up building what has now become known as the nonprofit Callisto. And I was there working as the chief development and operating officer for about four years, really thinking through how do we solve some of these gaps in survivor support and reporting and access through technology. And I really enjoyed my time there. It was a very startup environment. It was really fast paced and exciting. Um, But I also realized like my passion was advocacy. It was policy. It was how do we drive these conversations at a really big national level. And so when it's on us was eventually then spun out of the Obama Biden administration. Um, I was approached uh, by some folks um, who had worked on It's On Us and was basically said, hey, you should apply for this job. Like if you apply, you will get it. <laughs> and, and part of that reason was because I had already taken something that was a startup and built it with Jess into something really big and wonderful. And, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about It's On Us later, but It's On Us started as a public awareness campaign and a pledge that then caught fire and suddenly got incredible traction that I don't know if anyone anticipated the level of traction it was going to receive. And they really needed somebody to come in and wrap their arms around the, around it and figure out how do we build it's on us into a sustainable program that is well-funded, that has a strategic plan that has a very clear mission and vision that has very clear programming. And so I had done that at Callisto over four years. And so when I was approached to do it, I really was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to do this again. (laughs) Very much the sort of question mark that I had, but yeah, it's great. So, you know, we had a really, it was a really exciting, a really exciting moment. Well, we are huge fans of It's On Us. I actually just did finish my birthday donation on Facebook and all the proceeds that we raised went to It's On Us because it's one of my favorite organizations and all the work that you guys do. But for our listeners who may not know about the organization, can you explain to us what It's On Us does? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, It's On Us was originally a public awareness campaign that was launched in 2014 by the Obama-Biden administration. And 
while it was launched in 2014, I always say that it really had its roots 20 years earlier than that. For folks who aren't familiar, then Senator Biden was the lead on the Violence Against Women Act in the Senate and worked very hard to get it written and passed for the first time ever in 1994. And then he, you know, subsequently worked on its reauthorization every time that came up in his role in the Senate. And when he entered the Obama administration as vice president, one of his big priorities that he had very clearly laid out was going to be how do we address this issue of violence against women. And he brought in Lynn Rosenthal to serve as the first ever White House senior advisor on combating violence against women and really tasked her and her team with figuring out okay, it's been, you know, at this point it was 2008, it's been 14 years, it's been almost a decade and a half. What, what have we done that's worked? Where are we seeing successes? And most importantly, where are we seeing challenges? And, and as part of that deep dive, what they were able to sort of elicit from conversations, interviews, research, et cetera, was that the, a really big, basically area of need was that they had seen rates of sexual and domestic violence broadly were going down, which is a great thing. We all want to see that. However, the population of six of ages 16 to 24 had seen either no change or depending on how you looked at the data set, the problem had gotten worse. And they said, well, why, right? Why are we seeing very little if no change or a worsening of the issue within this population? And so again, another sort of deep dive and dig was put into that. And, and essentially they ended up finding that a large driver of issues of sexual assault within that age range was sexual assault on college campuses. And they said, okay, well, why, what is unique about the college campus environment that is making sexual assault such an epidemic at those schools, um, at schools. And so again, started having conversations with college and university administrators, campus safety groups, students, young alumni, et cetera, to really figure out like, what is the issue here? And ultimately, right, like we know from the research that like the majority of sexual assaults are committed by a minority of the male population who are oftentimes repeat offenders. And they're able to, you know, offend repeatedly, A, because survivors are afraid to report, as we talked about earlier, don't know how to report, and B, because no one around them steps in and tells them to not do it. And so It's On Us was really grounded in the premise of how do we talk to college students, but particularly the majority of young men who will never commit an act of sexual assault in their lifetime, much less on campus, and teach them about this issue of sexual assault and empower them to see themselves as part of the solution as active bystanders. And so It's On Us's work has really been grounded in that mission since 2014 of being the organization driving prevention education through a peer-to-peer model on college campuses, empowering our national network of now almost 300 student chapters nationwide to do this very peer-to-peer prevention education training that has a very specific focus on talking to young men and helping them feel like they can be part of this conversation and that they can be part of the solution and that they can hold their buddies accountable, whether it's, you know, the guy on the acapella group that they're in who says misogynist things about women and creeps the girls in the singing group out to, you know, your fraternity brother who you see him taking a girl that's too drunk to consent up the stairs to his room. How do you step in and say, Hey dude, 
she's way too drunk. You cannot take her up there or it's sexual assault. And so we really focus on having those conversations with young men through a variety of mechanisms. As I said, our campus chapter network does our peer-to-peer organizing work. We also have sort of large scale conversations about this issue. This spring, we've been doing an engaging men virtual series on a whole range of topics from the role of athletics, of male athletes and athletics on campus and combating rape culture as an example. And then we also do large scale culture change campaigns, right? It's on us was ground was was originated as a public awareness campaign. And so we've been able to continue our work with our creative agency mechanism, which built the it's on us brand uh, for the white house. And they've been wonderful and have helped us build out some of our most impactful digital and real life campaigns over the last few years, uh, including our very viral campaign, again, former Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, it's wonderful to be able to say former, called One Shitty Gift uh, (laughs) to get folks involved in the Title IX notice and comment process. And I just want to mention that we're going to have the links to It's On Us and all the It's On Us social media in our notes, specifically how somebody can sign up to bring It's On Us to their campus and everything if it's not one of the 300 plus chapters already. Also want to point out as a mom of boys, I am thrilled with the whole campaign about engaging men. We know it's really important to start that early with No Gray Zone. We absolutely believe that education is prevention. And I know you touched on a few things about the campaign and the peer-to-peer education, but I know especially during COVID, It's On Us has been out there with all kinds of series and all kinds of different programming for the Engaging Men campaign. Can you talk a little bit about some of the series and campaigns that's going on for that? Absolutely. So last summer, once we knew we were in COVID for the long haul, we made a really concerted effort to work with our students to identify what topics were the most pressing for them. We were trying to figure out how do we take the burden of creating programming off the shoulders of our students, where normally they would be creating the programming at their college campus and doing the trainings at their school and figuring out what was most important around this conversation within their campus community. But we we knew that that was a, an impossible ask during the pandemic. Students were in remote learning, hybrid learning environments, socially distancing. We didn't want an It's On Us event to become a super spreader event at any school, God forbid. And so we really put it back on ourselves and said, it's on us as the It's On Us staff to understand how we can best serve our students during this time. And so our wonderful, uh, she has a new title now, she was just promoted, uh, our new wonderful Senior Director of Educational Programs and Research, Sylvia Zenteno, put out a survey to our student chapters and basically said, what topics would you like us to cover as we're in this virtual environment? At the time, we were planning for our National Student Leadership Summit last summer, which was all fully virtual. But we wanted to know, A, what topics for that were most important, but then B, what topics would they like us to see tackle throughout the year? And unsurprisingly, the number one request for topics was how to organize virtually during a pandemic, (laughs) I think surprised no one. But the number two response across the board from our students who participated in the survey was engaging men in this work and wanting to really continue to have those important conversations. And I think a lot of that, right, was is reflective of the time that we've been in. We just came out of a very toxic presidential administration that just espoused toxic masculinity, that just upheld rape culture at every level. And so I think it was very 
clear to our student organizers that this issue was going to continue to be a challenge. And so how can we best equip them to have these conversations with men? And so we did a couple of engaging men sort of topics throughout the virtual summit, but then made the decision to really start 2021, regardless of what had happened with the presidential uh, you know, election, but really honing in on this need to address what we were seeing and what our students were seeing was this resurgence of toxic masculinity on college campuses, a resurgence of rape culture, a sense of emboldenedness by certain members of the male student population because of what they had seen and experienced under four years of Trump, and a gutting, right, by the Department of Education of protections for student survivors under Title IX. And so we really dug deep and started reaching out to our partners to talk about this issue. And the responses that we received from our field partners was like, yes, thank God someone is doing this. (laughs) Like, this is so important. And so in January, we kicked off the Engaging Men series. We had five events in January. And then throughout the spring, we've held two events per month, in addition to our other training opportunities and other engagement opportunities and survivor support opportunities. But we've done a range of topics, as I mentioned earlier, I facilitated a conversation between a recent It's On Us student leader who was a football player at SUNY Cortland, Kyle Richard, and James Smith-Williams, who's an NFL football player, and who are both very much dedicated to combating sexual and domestic violence as their sort of nonprofit charity work. And so had a conversation with them about how do we change the culture within male sports teams around this issue? How do we get them to see themselves as part of this solution? How do we engage coaches in this conversation? How do we set cultural norms within teams around combating sexual violence and misogyny? And so that was one of the topics. Most recently in March, we ha- we just completed our two for March and both of the, um, both of the conversations that we had were focused actually on sexual assault in the military context. So we had one panel of recent It's On Us alumni from the Naval Academy in West Point who came on to talk about their experiences working with It's On Us and combating rape culture at the military academies and then how that's affected their careers and some of the decisions that they've made now that they've graduated and are active duty from the East Coast to the West Coast to Germany. (laughs) Uh, We had a whole diverse uh, geographic representation. And then we had a secondary conversation the following week with two other wonderful men who have been partners of It's On Us. So Captain David Smith, who is a very well-known researcher on gender equity in the military context and who does work on sexual assault in the military. And then Dan Helmer, who is a West Point graduate. He is currently in the Army Reserves and he's also a state legislator in Virginia. And we've worked very closely with Dan over the years to pass survivor-centered legislation in Virginia around Title IX and campus sexual assault. And that was really about as two guys who have had this experience who are now older, why are they still committed to this work? What did they see in the military that caused them to want to work on this issue? Mm -hmm. And those conversations were really powerful. It was wonderful to sort of have this intergenerational play of, you know, guys who graduated in the last three years versus guys who graduated 20 years ago plus and see what has changed and sadly what hasn't in the military context around this issue. Mm -hmm. You're so right that like the solution is geared towards making sure that men have a buy-in to helping end 
sexual violence and and the fact that you have a legislator who's you know helping helping you write legislation that's kind of the next thing i want to talk to you a little bit about because as prosecutors we are frustrated sometimes with the laws that are written and i know that survivors are also frustrated with the ways um, current laws are written because they don't really they fail survivors a lot of times and you have worked on countless pieces of legislation at both the state and federal level aimed at preventing sexual assault and supporting survivors so what do you think is the most successful piece of legislation you've helped work on uh, that you think that you would like to see spread nationwide? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So on the state level, you know, we've been working very closely in Pennsylvania with Governor Tom Wolf for many years now. In 2016, Governor Wolf announced that Pennsylvania was going to be the first ever it's on a state. And which was wonderful. <laughs> He's great. As a, <laughs> I am a Pennsylvanian, so he makes me proud every day with that. But so we, you know, we've worked with him over the years and, and it's sort of been a two prong approach. So first we have a legislative package that we've been working to pass over the last few years. We did get pieces of it passed before COVID hit and the plan had been to get the rest of it passed. But then of course the pandemic ruins everything. And so that sort of put a pause in that But that legislation has some really important components. For example, it has a component around amnesty for survivors of sexual assault. So if they were underage drinking, for example, at the time, their school can't punish them for having been underage drinking at the time of their assault. That's really important. They also have one of the pieces of legislation that did get passed prior to the shutdown was requiring schools within Pennsylvania to offer online reporting options for survivors just to try to get more students to feel comfortable reporting. And so that's been really incredible to see that roll out. Another, but, and then on the other side of that coin, so we have the legislative package on the other side of that coin, we actually with them have been able to carve out about a million dollars a year from the state budget to actually fund school prevention programming in the state. So colleges and universities apply for these grants and they ought, they have to be focused on doing some kind of prevention education or capacity building within their campus community around this issue. And we've seen schools do incredible work with it. They've you know brought in Green Dot to do extensive bystander intervention training with their entire student population. We've seen schools use the funding to do you know, deep dive campus climate surveys to better understand like what is working and what isn't on this campus to help better inform prevention education efforts moving forward. So for me, I think, you know, we know schools are already so underfunded on this issue for various reasons. So to see Pennsylvania really say, no, this is a priority and we're going to make sure that colleges and universities within the Commonwealth have access to the funding to do this really important work and we're also going to pass laws that will help make our campuses safer. I think that two-prong approach is just something that I would love to see replicated nationwide. I know that's a big ask, but I do think (laughs) it is the dream. And if we're shooting for the stars, we might as well make that big ask. Absolutely. We can come to Maryland next. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) No problem there at all. So Tracy, in a bunch of your answers, you have discussed Title IX. We know what the purpose of Title IX. It's obviously designed to prevent discrimination based on gender and protect students on campus. And we know how that evolved with the Dear Colleague letter. However, last year there were several rule changes to Title IX and it's had a tremendous impact on college campuses. Can you explain how these changes that came about in 2020 have impacted survivors? Absolutely. So 
just to go back a little bit for folks who are listening, when Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, shortly after she was uh, confirmed by the Senate, one of the first things that she did was come in and gut Title IX protections for college students. She, in 2017, came out the gate that September and rescinded the Obama era guidance and put into place what is called interim guidance. It was deeply confusing for students, schools, advocates, lawyers, like you name it. Anybody who somehow touches this issue on college campuses was affected by this very confusing interim guidance and that interim guidance period. What that was followed up with was in November of 2018, Betsy DeVos's Department of Education put forward new rules, new proposed rules around Title IX. So if you're going to change a a federal law that is as big as Title IX to that degree, it has to go through a federal rulemaking process, which includes basically putting forward the proposed rules on the federal register, which is this deeply outdated wonky government (laughs) website for a public comment period. And those public comment periods can last anywhere from essentially usually 30 to 120 days. They went right down the middle, put it out for 60 days. And, you know, I really think the intention of that timing of putting forward the proposed rules was the hope that right between the holidays, right, it's right after Thanksgiving, right before Christmas, Everyone is in that holiday mood. Students are just trying to get through finals and get back home. And that no one's going to pay attention if she just puts forward this rulemaking process. Hopefully they won't get many comments, right? And then they'll be able to move through the process as quickly as possible and get the Title IX rule changed. We, of course, had anticipated that this was coming. We knew that at some point this rule change was going to happen. And so, again, we were able to leverage our wonderful partner mechanism, our creative agency, to start thinking about this problem even before we knew exactly the timing. It was sort of this, like, start and stop, start and stop, start and stop on our end of, like, we think it's coming. Oh, no, it didn't come. Oh, we think it's coming. Oh, it didn't come. And we... So we knew that it was coming at some point. And so the rule, the pros rule was put forward. We had a quick emergency huddle and I at this point had read through the proposed rules and the mechan- and the mechanism CEO, Jason Harris, who is one of my favorite people to work with said to me, well, Tracy, like, what about like, what is it in the rules? And I was like, Jason, they're just shitty. I was like, that's it. They're just <laughs> shitty. They're shitty, rules. they're shitty proposed rules. And I was like, so whatever you have to do, like, just do it. We have to get people to know that this is happening and get them to public comment. And Jason took that and ran with it. (laughs) And his team came back with what ended up becoming our one shitty gift campaign. And it was hashtag one and then shitty, but in the middle where the I and the first T was, was an I and an X for title nine and then gift. And it was both a virtual and digital campaign with sort of an in-person stunt that we did where we literally turned her into a Dr. Seuss, like how the Grinch stole Christmas character. And we had the mechanism team created illustrations. They created an entire how Dr. Seuss poem, our dear friend of its on as actress, Alyssa Milano read the story and we filmed it with her. Um, li- I'm telling you, we literally pulled this together in a week, which is like how like amazing this team is of people and how dedicated Alyssa as an advocate of ours is to this work. And we pulled the video together. We printed out literally like Christmas wrapping paper that had Betsy DeVos's like caricatured Grinch face on it with like hashtag one shitty gift. 
we printed out hundreds of copies of the proposed rules and mailed them all across the country. We mailed them to members of Congress. We mailed them to student organizers. We mailed them to influencers and media outlets. And so that way they would all arrive on the same day. And then our video went out, our website went out. And essentially we wanted to create as much buzz as possible around this and like let people know, hey, this terrible rule changes out and we got to do something about it. And so the whole premise was, Betsy DeVos has given students one shitty gift this Christmas season, but you have the ability to return it. The way that you can return this unwanted gift is to participate in the federal regulatory process. The day that the campaign launched, that morning, there were only 1,400 comments submitted. We launched it on, I believe, a Wednesday or Thursday. We practically crashed the federal (laughs) register website. And within two days... Over 50,000 people had submitted comments. It's amazing. Which is amazing, right? And like we broke the record for the number of comments ever submitted to the Federal Register on a Department of Ed rulemaking process. And it really enabled us to sort of put sand in the gears and slow slow the process down. Because for anybody who knows anything about this very wonky process is aware of, they have to read and respond to every unique comment that's submitted. So you have 125,000 of them. That's going to take you some time. Unfortunately, they were sort of able to get through that process just under the wire. And last spring, the Department of Education moved forward with the proposed rule changes and basically said that they were going to go into enforcement August 14th of 2020. This combined, right, with the pandemic chaos that and challenges that schools were addressing was just awful right like schools don't want this rule change students don't want the rule change experts don't want the rule change and to begin with and now you're asking schools to come into compliance with it in the middle of a global pandemic like that's just horrible and during the you know the Trump administration we had already seen students facing challenges with reporting because schools were in this interim guidance period they didn't know what the rules were going to do like Schools didn't know what to do. Survivors didn't know what to do. It really put a chilling effect to begin with on reporting during that period. And then after the rules went into effect, we've seen an even a greater chilling effect. Students aren't coming forward to report because A, the rules restrict what reports are permissible under Title IX to such a severe degree that the majority of instances of sexual misconduct aren't, don't qualify because of how stringent the new rule, um, the new rule is. And then secondarily, the students also aren't coming forward because their schools also are trying to get their feet under them in this new rule. And like they barely gave schools any time to begin the process of implementing it even without a pandemic, even if a pandemic had not happened, it still would have been a monumental task for schools to try to come into compliance with this law or this rule change in a way that did the least amount of harm because most of them don't want this rule to begin with. And now coupled with that, like schools are struggling to implement the rule in a do no harm way. And so when students are going into that process, even if they do meet the stringent requirements, they're being harmed by the process because schools don't even haven't had the capacity in most cases to even do the rule change well because of this challenge around COVID and the rule change happening simultaneously. 
Yeah, you know, the Catherine and I have talked a lot about, you know, Title IX and, and the fact that they were prior administration was very open about the fact that they wanted to restrict the ability for students to report and that they knew were open about it that it would what would happen is there would be less reports. Not that there would be less sexual assault, just less reports. And it's really mind-blowing that anybody who is supposed to be a advocate for students would want that outcome. But in good news, President Biden signed an executive order on guaranteeing an educational environment free from discrimination on the basis of sex, including sexual orientation or gender identity. And that is under a 100-day review period. So what do you hope to come out of that 100-day review period? And how do you believe that survivors should be included? Absolutely. So I think just first and foremost, I think the first action that the department needs to take is to really rebuild trust with the student survivor community. Trust was broken so badly over the last four years. And while Secretary Cardona and Suzanne Goldberg are not responsible for that, for perpetrating that harm, they are responsible for addressing the harm. And so I think fundamentally what we need to see is the Department of Education come out at the front of this 100-day review process and say, we recognize significant harm is done to the survivor community. And we are committing publicly to working shoulder to shoulder with survivors throughout this process and making sure that the process is trauma-informed, is clear, they're transparent, they're communicative, and that they're really ensuring that students are a part of this process at every step. I think on top of that, not just involving students, but also taking seriously like their expertise and their and their experiences. By the time a future Title IX policy is enacted, it will have been more than a decade since the Obama-Biden reforms were originally published in 2011. So much has changed in the world, right? And then, so we can only think about how much has changed on college campuses in those 10 years. You know, like we can't, like I'm constantly hearing from administrators how much they hate Snapchat because the messages and the photos and the videos disappear and with them goes evidence. And so it's like, how do we address the challenges of a modern campus community through these Title IX rules. And again, like, and, and in addition to that, like not just talking to sort of, I think, the survivors who have tended to be at the forefront of these conversations, like the department really needs to make a concerted effort to reach those most historically marginalized student populations in this conversation. So making sure that they're stalking to students of color, making sure that LGBTQ survivors are a part of this conversation, ensuring that disabled students, undocumented survivors, et cetera, are a part of these conversations in an intentional and meaningful way. Because fundamentally, if we build a, a Title IX policy that addresses the needs of those most historically underserved, it will serve everybody better. And so making sure that those voices are a part of this process in a very centered and intentional way is really critical. And then I think really at the end of the day, like they have to make sure that they're transparent in this process, that they're outlining in clear, plain language, the process for how survivors experiences and expertise will be gathered. And I think that that's really part of this trauma informed process that we need to see them take and have them recognize survivors have experienced so much harm over the last four years. And that means that they need to be transparent, clear, concise communication, help students understand this process because it is wonky and it is complicated. And the best way to make students feel like that they can trust that this process is being done well and that the Department of Ed has their back is to ensure that any communication is clear and transparent. And then fundamentally at the end of the day, like I think the department 
at times, if they're really going to take a survivor-centered approach to this, which I think they need to and must do, is they're going to need to be able to walk the walk with student survivors when they put forward proposed rules that might be not exactly what administrators want or in conflict with administrators. You know, we've always seen conflict between what is best for student survivors and what's best for a university's general counsel, right? Like we've seen that over the last decade. And fundamentally, the only way that we are going to make our campuses safer for all is if we are upholding the rights of student survivors and making them feel supported in coming forward and knowing that the process for their investigation and reporting is one that is sound and survivor-centered. And that might mean, like I said, going toe-to-toe with university administrators who may say, you're asking too much of us. I don't think you can ever ask too much of a university when it comes to campus safety, you are there, like the school is there to provide a safe and equitable education to all of its students. And it might mean, yeah, you have to make an extra investment in X, Y, or Z, but you know what? It's important and it's critical because you don't, I want a future where no student graduates having experienced sexual assault during their time on campus. And the only way we're going to get there is if we actually invest in doing that work. 100%. Melissa and I say all the time, our whole goal is to put ourselves out of business so that hopefully we're not prosecuting sexual assault cases. But Tracy, we know you and we know It's On Us is gonna be a part of this 100 day review process and making sure survivors' voices are heard, making sure students are part of the process and not ignored and holding government accountable and being transparent to survivors. And so we can't thank you enough for the work that you and It's On Us are doing for that part. And Melissa and I could talk to you for hours. (laughs) And we know you have a lot more information to share, but that's all the time we have for today. If you want to learn more about Tracy, Title IX, or It's On Us, and how to engage men, we're going to have all the links to the website, It's On Us, uh, Tracy's fabulous recent op-ed on talking about what needs to be done, the five suggestions for bringing survivors in, all of that will be in the notes. It has truly been our pleasure to have you with us today, and you are welcome back anytime on No Gray Zone. Thank you so much, Catherine and Melissa. I've really enjoyed having the opportunity to chat with both of you. Thank you again, Tracy, for all you've done to educate and provide services and help eradicate sexual assault and support survivors. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. And you can find us on social media at No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to gender-based violence. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring too much.